today, uh, we have a guest preacher, Kylie. I'm so happy that she can be here. She has preached here regularly, so some of you know her. Uh, she's a fellow covenant pastor that Mary and I have been friends with for many, many years. And so I'm very happy to invite Kylie to come on forward. It's really great to be here with you this morning. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among you, that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no love, no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Since Thanksgiving, I have been covering a maternity leave with a classroom full of fifth graders. <laughs> we recently finished a unit on the rainforest, and one of the things that the kids learned is that in the rainforest, they were kind of looking at all the different aspects of the food web. Animals have to be attentive to even the faintest sounds. They have to listen. They don't just walk or saunter through the rainforest, they prowl, right? They have to be attentive because even the smallest signs can mean the difference between life and death. I think that's some decent motivation. <laughs> Pastors Mary and John asked me this morning to come and to preach on the topic of listening for God, and so as I was mulling over this topic, I kept coming back to the question of why. Why is it so important to listen for God? I don't feel like anybody is crouching in the shadows waiting to eat me alive. What's the big deal? What am I missing? What am I risking if I neglect to actively listen and aim to respond? So I sat with that question for the better part of a couple of days, and I prayed about it, and I, I think there's a number of things that we're missing if we're not actively listening to God, but the answer that God gave me for this week is that we lose our propensity to live kind of remarkable lives, ones that really gather attention and catch people by surprise. We lose our propensity to love to an unreasonable level, supernaturally, really, because our own wisdom takes over, self-preservation kicks in, and we think we know what's best, but then, ironically, it's this unreasonable, this spirit-reliant love, this remarkable love that is one of the surest hallmarks of followers of Jesus. I gotta tell you, sometimes it's a bit discouraging to be a Christian in this time in history, in this place. Our society has all sorts of feelings about people who follow Jesus or who claim to follow Jesus, but most of those feelings are no longer positive ones. The evangelical tradition was once known for fighting slavery. We were known for founding hospitals and schools to serve the poor. And we were known for acts of mercy and for humble sacrifice and really big tent revivals, right? Where we invited all of our friends and had sawdust on the floor. <laughs> and we invited our friends because we were concerned about them. We actually had an invitational posture towards our society. And that, I wouldn't say these efforts have all gone away. But such caring is not what we're primarily known for anymore. If you were going to take a microphone like they do on the late night shows and go out and find some passers-by right on the street, and you stuck a, a mic in their face and you said, what do you think of word association game? What do you think of when we say evangelical? 
More often than not, they might flinch. Hmm. Now I feel like perhaps we're known for acting morally superior, for being insular, for dragging our feet at tasks of racial righteousness when we could be leading the way. And no matter how moving or noble its beginnings, any, any movement of Christ that stops listening for God can end up trading in their remarkable love for the ordinary variety that's indistinguishable from anybody else's. When a church or a movement does this, they end up loving others when it's just not too costly, not too disruptive. And their giving becomes, well, maybe you've seen this some places, it becomes self-congratulatory. It kind of wanes and it becomes just charity that protects and promotes the imbalance of power, that underscores the premise of superiority, spiritually and otherwise, instead of being rooted in real care and kinship and in solidarity. When the church only really spends themselves, like really goes out on a limb for people that are enough like them, people they calculate are worth the effort, then they risk becoming a witness against the gospel instead of a testament, a living testament to God's power to save. Indeed, in our nation, I could argue that this has taken place. And by relying on our own wisdom, instead of hungrily and humbly listening for God, evangelicals have stopped becoming known for remarkable, radical love. Instead, we're becoming known for blindly following those who promise political power, whatever side of the divide you find yourself on, conveniently looking the other way at times that we perceive to be advantageous. <laughs> we kind of prefer to keep our own company instead of wasting time with people from other traditions. Publicly, we want to look better. We want to look more virtuous than our neighbors. But our private purchasing habits would tell another story, right? Whether it be luxury goods or alcohol or pornography, that tells a story, actually, if you went into our accounts. That tells a story of a people that's largely more concerned with their own comfort than the well-being of their neighbor. And it is a sobering season to be a part of the church in North America. And the prickly part, I got to tell you, it feels like maybe I just drew a really mean uh, caricature, right? But the prickly part is that none of us are completely immune from it. None of us actually have nothing to do with that character. We actually, all of us, in some ways, intentionally or otherwise, in some ways we do contribute to that character. When I'm honest, I have to admit that I do. I'm not entirely exceptional to the state of the church that I decry. <laughs> if you've been around church folks long enough, you've probably heard that Oh, smug little quip. It's cheeky, really, about how the activity of the Holy Spirit, it loves to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I don't know if you've heard that one before. <laughs> I think maybe I've been feeling a little comfortable lately because I've been in a season of being poked and prodded, distinctly, repeatedly, uncomfortably. I think the Holy Spirit has been persistent. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit has been persistent with me has been prodding me to take action, to take inventory. So in 2020 thus far, all five weeks or whatever that we've been in it, I've been asking myself, 
where have I shown remarkable, even unreasonable care to people outside the church of late? Is there any place that my behavior has been supernaturally caring? In what forums or spheres of influence have I been sacrificially different from others in any way that, I don't know, legitimately could be called unreasonable? God has helped me identify some places where I've harbored self-righteous, even smug attitudes. Times when I've imagined that surely God must love me so much more than he loves the people who don't make such brilliant choices the way I do. God's convicted me about times when I have repeatedly preferred the company of others who are like me and not the work required of people who don't yet follow Jesus. God has lovingly revealed to me where I have allowed selfish motives to govern my actions. Instances where my comfort-driven priorities are revealed by how I spend my time and my money. And it's been a bit of a medicinal season in this regard. Medicinal seasons are kind of hard. They're not really fun. But what happens when we take medicine at the direction of the great physician? Healing happens, right? And life returns. So as I have grown in my capacity to see some of that rot that stubbornly clings to my old self, as I have apologized to our Savior for falling short, I have also grown in my appreciation for the ways that God Just like we heard this morning with the assurance of pardon, God joyfully forgives us. He forgives me, and he invites me forward. He does this for all of us. When we listen for God, when we listen for God's invitation, the results are always remarkable. God wants us to be so generous with our time, our energy, our advocacy, our resources, that our neighbors who don't know Jesus yet, well, they notice, and they're curious. Our lives, our priorities, our unselfish love, our willingness to be colossally inconvenienced for the sake of somebody else, that ought to serve as a fragrance that attracts others to Jesus Christ. So the good news is that the rest of the morning is going to be spent dwelling on the news that Jesus teaches us how to do this. Jesus shows us how to listen for God and to respond with remarkable love. But I also want to know that an extended time of repentance and prayer will prepare your soul to receive this message in a way that nothing I can do will. So when you came in, or maybe when you go out, I'm not sure, we we ran um, some prayer guides, they're half sheet. I know this is probably a fool's errand to even consider giving this to you on Super Bowl Sunday, Um, but we have a prayer guide. And I would invite you um, today, at some point, if you can't get it in today, maybe later in the week, But I would invite you to consider spending an hour, a whole hour with God in prayer. The guide is there. It'll give you questions to think about every five or ten minutes. But I invite you to schedule a time with God where you leave your phone on the counter and you go to the next room. Or better yet, you offer your spouse, you say, I'll watch the kids first. And maybe at the end of the hour and a half or so, they'll say thanks and they'll come and do the other favor back. I don't know. But I invite you to spend some time a good chunk of time with God today. Spend a whole hour in worshiping God, in confession and thanksgiving, and asking God to speak and to act. And ask God to help you find those places where you've been wandering, where your soul might no longer be omitting that, emitting, excuse me, that, that fragrance 
that Christ is known for. Invite the Holy Spirit to poke you and disturb you, and I promise that if you spend a whole hour, first of all, telling God all those things, but mostly listening for God's gracious answer in return, you will be more ready to receive this instruction that God is feeding all of us today. So I'm going to ask you, if you'll grab your Bibles, I'll give you a minute, open it up to 1 John 4, 17, and then we're going to stand up together. 1 John 4, 17. I'm going to read it two times. The first time, you can read it along. The second time, I invite you to just shut your eyes and listen. Okay? This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. All right, we'll do it one more time. This time, you can shut your eyes. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Have a seat. Now Christmas is over. They've taken down the, the last of the discount ornaments and stockings, and they're putting up all the shelves full of pink chocolate boxes, right? The season has come and gone. But I got to tell you, the mystery of the incarnation still fills me with wonder. God became a human being. And it's crazy because it's the most gigantic, creative, lovely, wise, amazing being in the entire universe. Actually, not just in the universe, in any realm that we can imagine, right? This divine being chose to be limited in the body of a human being. That's pretty wild. And one of the reasons that we celebrate the incarnation is that Jesus was a trailblazer. Now, a couple of years ago, my intrepid husband, right about this time of year, right, he decided what he needs, there's too many gray days in a row, he just needs a little more outdoor time that will help him thoroughly enjoy this very long five-month winter that we have in Minnesota. So he goes online and he finds a snowshoeing group. And they're meeting at a local state park. He shows up, enthusiastic, got his snowshoes, right? What the, the listing didn't tell him was that the entire group is made of retirees. Okay, boomer, here we go. And they look at him, and at the time he's still in his 30s, they see this eager beaver, and they welcome him warmly, warmly, and what do they do? With one mind, they say, we're so glad you're here, and they give him the place of honor right at the front of the line. Well, John came home much more aware of muscles about which he had been previously blissfully ignorant, right? One of the lessons of the day was that the trail is already, the trail is always easier if you can follow in the footsteps of somebody who's already walked it. This is how love is made complete among us, that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So every good sermon has two ingredients, has a place of discomfort, and it has God's good news. The squirm factor in today's message is, well, the verse says there is a day of judgment coming. It's kind of unequivocal. On the day that that happens, we're going to be standing before the throne of God, 
and our generosity or our stinginess will be on display, our love or our hypocrisy. And it has been a really long time since that story in Genesis took place, but it's not so long that we're outside the echo of Cain's bitter retort because those of us who follow Jesus know that we are called to be our brother's keeper. And we will answer to God if we fail to do so. And in this way, maybe we're not that different from the rainforest animals because listening for God can be a matter of life or death, certainly for the church corporately and its ability to impact society, maybe even individually in terms of the vitality of our journey with Jesus. But the good news of God this morning is that we get to look to Jesus. He went before us. He wore the snowshoes first on the trail. He shows us how it's done. And we're called to listen to God, to follow the example of God in the flesh. So let's look back at the passage one more time. 1 John 4.17, it says, In this world. So I think the first thing we got to notice is that Jesus was in the world. Jesus came and he got dirty and he was vulnerable and he got hungry and thirsty and probably he got a, a cold every now and then, right? Our lot was his lot. Jesus didn't hide from the world and he didn't hide from his disappointments either. Instead, he entered in. And the first way that we can have confidence on the day of judgment is that we can enter in too. We can come near because proximity is powerful. Maybe you've got an older neighbor who's learning to cook for himself after decades, right? He's the first time now that he's a widower and he's actually having to figure out something other than pasta. Maybe you have somebody learning to speak English who's recently arrived, or a kid around the corner who's nearing the end of elementary school and still doesn't know their times tables. See, the thing is, we don't know about any of those scenarios if we only ever keep to ourselves. So the first way that we are invited to be like Jesus is to come closer, to listen to God. So I'm going to ask you to take your dog on some more walks, <laughs> to introduce yourself around the apartment building, to shop maybe at the smaller stores. I think they can be a little bit grittier, but if you go there often enough, you actually get to know the employees by name. You can chit-chat. The idea is that we intentionally rub shoulders with people from a variety of backgrounds. Find ways to grow in proximity to others, perhaps or even especially to others who are suffering. In the person of Jesus, God came near to us, and as we listen for God, we find that God calls us to come near to others. All right, so once he got here, once he came to the people and pitched his tent the way John 1 says, once Jesus was here and made his dwelling among us, I think the next thing he did was notice. Now, I want to give credit where credit is due. It seems like his mama was pretty good at this herself, right? If I recall the story of Cana, the first miracle, she was the one who noticed that the wine had run out. So maybe he learned from some of the best. But Jesus, he learned well, because if we look at his track record in the Gospels, he notices when the disciples are shooing away all those pushy parents and the ready-nosed kids, right? He notices the woman who touched his the hem of his robe, she'd been bleeding for a really long time. He notices when Bartimaeus is st stuck on the corner by the 7-Eleven and he is screaming his lungs out. Jesus notices these things. 
And if we're to be like Jesus in the world, if we are to listen for God, then we too need to notice the circumstances and the situations of people around us. Now, if you're anything like me, this is the part where your inside voice begins to argue. <laughs> Come near to suffering? Are you kidding? Notice it more than I already do? I mean, really? It, I have a cell phone and it gives me bad news 24-7. It tells me about a world where wildfires are burning whole continents, where war ravages regions, where famine lurks and earthquakes shake the islands, where passenger planes are shot out of the sky and toddlers routinely shoot themselves with unsecured handguns. This is what my phone tells me about. It tells me about public schools where our classrooms are daily more segregated and funny thing, look who gets the short end of the stick over and over again. In a world like this, I think I would rather retreat, thank you very much. I would rather just scroll through my friend's vacation pictures on Instagram and play Candy Crush. I mean, we all kind of need our coping strategies. Mine could be worse, right? God knows that we are feeling overwhelmed. Everybody is. But the question remains persistent. What does unreasonable love look like for me against that backdrop today or tomorrow or this week in my setting? Now, the needs I even know about are and always will be so much more than my capacity to respond. Did you hear that? The needs I even know about are and always will be so much greater than my capacity to respond. So how do I know the difference between a need and a call? How do I triage? How did Jesus discern timing or know what direction to turn? How did he know that they needed to go through Samaria in John chapter 4? Or that it was time for the 5,000 to sit down on their rear ends and be fed in Matthew 14? How did he look out and avoid despair as he announced that the fields were ripe for harvest? I think that Jesus knew when and how to respond to the needs that he noticed because he relied on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus listened for God. He prayed all the time. He slipped away before dawn. He stayed up way past his bedtime. He prayed before he ate. He prayed after he ate. He prayed on the road. He played in the wild outdoors. Well, you get the picture, right? It's like a kid's book. Jesus prayed all the time. And as a result of his time in prayer, Jesus received hope and wisdom. And God reminded him that he's not alone. God reminds us that we are not alone either. If we've asked for forgiveness and committed our lives to our Creator, then God lives inside of us, and God is so eager to talk to us. Ephesians 2.10 says that God calls us masterpieces because we've actually been designed and gifted and resourced and equipped for such a time as this. That's what Esther called it. For such a time as this, for divine appointments, for good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. The Holy Spirit knows the playbook. In fact, the Holy Spirit can see the future impact of remarkable love even when we can only guess at the fruit that such seeds might bear. The Spirit is capable of directing and equipping us so that others can see God's remarkable love in our sacrificial actions. 
What did Jesus do when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed. He listened for God's direction and strength, and as a result, the world has never seen a more remarkable example of love. In John 4, 13, that's four verses up from where we started this morning, we read, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Friends, I joked at the beginning, but this is actually a matter of life and death. This is how we know. This is how the world knows. This is how we know. This is how the world knows that we are alive in Jesus. Are we alive? Let's get in the habit of asking the Holy Spirit for direction. And then when God responds, let's follow through with obedience so generous and so eager that our caring catches the world by surprise. <laughs> the final way that I'd like to highlight that we can be like Jesus is that Jesus was courageous because he knew the words of Scripture. He knew how much he was loved. When he resisted temptation in the desert, what did he do? He pulled that Scripture right out of his back pocket. Those words of God were available for withdrawal because of all of his faithful deposits over the years. Jesus spoke truth, medicinal truth perhaps, to his hometown in Nazareth about the unreasonable God, and he used words from Scripture. He, he quoted Isaiah. You see, Jesus knew God's word, and Jesus wasn't paralyzed by all the what-ifs like we can be sometimes. I mean, I can be sometimes. Jesus was bold and courageous, occasionally even prophetic. Remember when he told all those religious people that the one who should throw the first stone would be the one without sin? And that young woman, right, who was crouched in front of them wearing really not much but her shame? I aspire to be like Jesus in my courage, in my conviction, my authenticity, so that fear can't get a foothold. You see, Jesus was the same person every single place he went. That's something I think about. He didn't have to be fear being found out. He could demonstrate remarkable love because he was so certain of his standing with the Father. He knew and relied on the love God had for him. In the desert, on the road, in the temple, really everywhere he went to teach, Jesus revealed that God's word was hidden in his heart. So as we listen for God, we will grow in our proximity to others, our capacity to notice, just like Mary, our prayerful reliance on the Holy Spirit, our desire to faithfully hide Scripture in our hearts. And then we will understand more every day about how remarkably we are loved. And we'll get to witness our courage rising like a temperature in the spring while our fear evaporates and we will see, we will actually see even more opportunities to love others with the same love that we have received. Amen? I'm going to finish with this verse, and I invite you once again to listen. You can have your eyes shut or open. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, 
but perfect love drives out fear. The word of the Lord. <laughs>